Introduction to History of a Literary Radical and Other Essays by Randolph Bourne Edited and with an introduction by Van Wyck Brooks This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. History of a Literary Radical and Other Essays by Randolph Bourne Introduction R.B. Bittersweet and a northwest wind to sing his requiem, who was our age, and who becomes an imperishable symbol of our ongoing, for in himself he rose above his body and came among us prophetic of the race. The great hater of the dark human deformity which is our dying world, the great lover of the spirit of youth, which is our future's seed. James Oppenheim Introduction Randolph Bourne was born in Bloomfield, New Jersey, May 30th, 1886. He died in New York, December 22nd, 1918. Between these two dates was packed one of the fullest, richest, and most significant lives of the younger generation. Its outward events can be summarized in a few words. Bourne went to the public schools in his native town, and then for some time earned his living as an assistant to a manufacturer of automatic piano music. In 1909, he entered Columbia, graduating in 1913 as holder of the Gilder Fellowship, which enabled him to spend a year of study and investigation in Europe. In 1911, he had begun contributing to the Atlantic Monthly, and his first book, Youth and Life, a volume of essays, appeared in 1913. He was a member of the contributing staff of the New Republic during its first three years. Later, he was a contributing editor of The Seven Arts and The Dial. He had published, in addition to his first collection of essays and a large number of miscellaneous articles and book reviews, two other books, Education and Living and The Gary Schools. At the time of his death, he was engaged on a novel and a study of the political future. It might be guessed from this that Bourne at 32 had not quite found himself. His interests were indeed almost universal. He had written on politics, economics, philosophy, education, literature. No other of our younger critics had cast so wide a net, and Bourne had hardly begun to draw the strings and count and sort his catch. He was a working journalist, a literary freelance with connections often of the most precarious kind, who contrived, by daily miracles of audacity and courage, to keep himself serenely afloat in a society where his convictions prevented him from following any of the ordinary avenues of preferment and recognition. It was a feat never to be sufficiently marveled over. It would have been striking in our 20th century New York, even in the case of a man who was not physically handicapped as Bourne was. 
But such a life is inevitably scattering, and it was only after the war had literally driven him in upon himself that he set to work at the systematic harvesting of his thoughts and experiences. He had not quite found himself, perhaps, owing to the extraordinary range of interests for which he had to find a personal common denominator. Yet no other young American critic, I think, had exhibited so clear a tendency, so coherent a body of desires. His personality was not only unique, it was also absolutely expressive. I have had the delightful experience of reading through at a sitting, so to say, the whole mass of his uncollected writings, articles, essays, book reviews, unprinted fragments, and a few letters, and I am astonished at the way in which, like a ball of camphor in a trunk, the pungent savor of the man spreads itself over every paragraph. Here was no anonymous reviewer, no mere brilliant satellite of the radical movement losing himself in his immediate reactions. One finds everywhere, interwoven in the fabric of his work, the silver thread of a personal philosophy, the singing line of an intense and beautiful desire. What was that desire? It was for a new fellowship in the youth of America as the principle of a great and revolutionary departure in our life, a league of youth, one might call it, consciously framed with the purpose of creating out of the blind chaos of American society a fine, free, articulate cultural order. That, as it seems to me, was the dominant theme of all his effort, the positive theme to which he always returned from his thrilling forays into the fields of education and politics, philosophy and sociology. One finds it at the beginning of his career in such essays as Our Cultural Humility. One finds it at the end in The History of a Literary Radical. One finds it in that pacifism which he pursued with such an obstinate and lonely courage, and which was the logical outcome of the checking and thwarting of those currents of thought and feeling in which he had invested the whole passion of his life. Place aux jeunes might have been his motto. He seemed indeed the flying wedge of the younger generation itself. I shall never forget my first meeting with him. That odd little apparition with his vibrant eyes, his quick bird-like steps, and the long, black student's cape he had brought back with him from Paris. It was in November 1914, and we never imagined then that the war was going to become more than a slash, however deep, across the face of civilization. We never imagined it was going to plow on and on until it had uprooted and turned under the soil so many green shoots of hope and desire in the young world. Bourne had published that radiant book of essays on the adventure of life, the two generations, the excitement of friendship, with its happy and confident suggestion of the present as a sort of transparent veil hung up against the window of some dazzling future. He had had his wander year abroad, and had come home with that indescribable air of the scholar-gypsy, his sensibility fresh, clairvoyant, matutinal, a philosopher of the Gaia Sienza, his hammer poised over the rock of American philistinism, with never a doubt in his heart of the waters of youth imprisoned there. 
One divined him in a moment, the fine, meddlesome temper of his intellect, his curiosity, his acutely critical self-consciousness, his aesthetic flair, his delicate sense of personal relationships, his toughness of fiber, his masterly powers of assimilation, his grasp of reality, his burning convictions, his beautifully precise desires. Here was Emerson's American scholar at last, but radiating an infinitely warmer, profaner, more companionable influence than Emerson had ever dreamed of, an influence that savored rather of Whitman and William James. He was the new America incarnate with that stamp of a sort of permanent youthfulness on his queer, twisted, appealing face. You felt that in him the new America had suddenly found itself and was all astir with the excitement of its first maturity. His life had prepared him for the role, for the physical disability that had cut him off from the traditional currents and preoccupations of American life had given him a poignant insight into the predicament of all those others who, like him, could not adjust themselves to the industrial machine, the exploited, the sensitive, the despised, the aspiring, those, in short, to whom a new and very different America was no academic idea, but a necessity so urgent that it had begun to be a reality. As detached as any young East-sider from the herd unity of American life, the colonial tradition, the genteel tradition, yet passionately concerned with America, passionately caring, for America, he had discovered himself at Columbia, where so many strains of the newer immigrant population meet one another in the full flood and ferment of modern ideas. Shut in as he had been with himself and his books, what dreams had passed through his mind of the possibilities of life, of the range of adventures that are open to the spirit of some great collective effort of humanity? Would there never be room for these things in America? Was it not precisely the task of the young to make room for them? Bourne's grandfather and great-grandfather had been dowdy preachers and reformers. He had inherited a certain religious momentum that thrust him now into the midst of the radical tide. Above all, he had found companions who helped him to clarify his ideas and grapple with his aims. Immigrants, many of them of the second generation, candidates for the melting pot that had simply failed to melt them. They trailed with them a dozen rich, diverse racial and cultural tendencies which America seemed unable either to assimilate or to suppress. Were they not, these newcomers of the eleventh hour, as clearly entitled as the first colonials had been to a place in the sun of the great experimental democracy upon which they were making such strange new demands? They wanted a freer emotional life, a more vivid intellectual life. Oddly enough, it was they, and not the hereditary Americans, the people of action, who spoke of an American culture and demanded it. Bourne had found his natural allies. Intensely Anglo-Saxon himself, it was America he cared for, not the triumph of the Anglo-Saxon tradition, which had apparently lost itself in the pursuit of a mechanical efficiency. It was a transnational America of which he caught glimpses now, a battleground of all the cultures, a superculture that might perhaps, by some happy chance, determine the future of civilization itself. It was with some such vision as this that he had gone abroad. 
If that superculture was ever to come, it could only be through some prodigious spiritual organization of the youth of America, some organization that would have to begin with small and highly self-conscious groups. These groups, moreover, would have to depend for a long time upon the experience of young Europe. The very ideas of spiritual leadership, the intellectual life, the social revolution, were foreign to a modern America that had submitted to the common mold of business enterprise. Even philosophers like Professor Dewey had had to assume a protective coloration, and when people spoke of art, they had to justify it as an asset. For Bourne, therefore, the European tour was something more than a preparation for his own life. He was like a bird in the nesting season, gathering twigs and straw for a nest that was not to be his but young America's, a nest for which old America would have to provide the bow. He was in search, in other words, of new ideas, new attitudes, new techniques, personal and social, for which he was going to demand recognition at home. And it is this that gives to his Impressions of Europe, 1913 to 1914, his report to Columbia as holder of the Gilder Fellowship, an actuality that so perfectly survives the war. Where one can find anything better in the way of social insight than his pictures of radical France, of the ferment of the young Italian soul, of the London intellectuals, Sidney Webb lecturing with the, quote, patient air of a man expounding arithmetic to backward children, Shaw, Quote, clean, straight, clear, and fine as an upland wind and summer sun. Chesterton, quote, gluttonous and thick with something tricky and unsavory about him. Of the Scandinavian note, quote, one got a sense in those countries of the most advanced civilization, yet without sophistication, a luminous modern intelligence that selected and controlled and did not allow itself to be overwhelmed by the chaos of 20th century possibility. We see things in that white light only when they have some deeply personal meaning for us, and Bourne's instinct had led him straight to his mark. Two complex impressions he had gained that were to dominate all his later work. One was the sense of what a national culture is, of its immense value and significance as a source and fund of spiritual power even in a young world committed to a political and economic internationalism. The other was a keen realization of the almost apostolic role of the young student class in perpetuating, rejuvenating, vivifying, and, if need be, creating this national consciousness. No young Hindu ever went back to India. No young Persian or Ukrainian or Balkan student ever went home from a European year with a more fervent sense of the chaos and spiritual stagnation and backwardness of his own people, of the happy responsibility laid upon himself and all those other young men and women who had been touched by the modern spirit. It was a tremendous moment. Never had we realized so keenly the spiritual inadequacy of American life. The great war of the cultures left us literally gasping in the vacuum of our own provincialism, colonialism, naivete, and romantic self-complacency. We were in much the same position as that of the Scandinavian countries during the European wars of 1866 to 1870, if we are to accept George Brandis's description of it. Quote, 
while the intellectual life languished as a plant droops in a close, confined place, the people were self-satisfied. They rested on their laurels and fell into a doze. And while they dozed, they had dreams. The cultivated, and especially the half-cultivated, public in Denmark and Norway dreamed that they were the salt of Europe. They dreamed that by their idealism they would regenerate the foreign nations. They dreamed that they were the free, mighty North, which would lead the cause of the peoples to victory, and they woke up unfree, impotent, ignorant. End quote. It was through a great effort of social introspection that Scandinavia had roused itself from the stupor of this optimistic idealism, and at last a similar movement was on foot in America. The New Republic had started with the war. The masses was still young. The seven arts and the new dial were on the horizon. Bourne found himself instantly in touch with the purposes of all these papers, which spoke of a new class consciousness, a sort of offensive and defensive alliance of the younger intelligentsia and the awakened elements of the labor groups. His audience was awaiting him, and no one could have been better prepared to take advantage of it. It was not merely the exigencies of journalism that turned his mind at first so largely to the problems of primary education. In Professor Dewey's theories, in the Gary schools, he saw, as he could see it nowhere else, the definite promise, the actual unfolding of the freer, more individualistic, and at the same time more communistic social life of which he dreamed. But even if he had not come to feel a certain inadequacy in Professor Dewey's point of view, I doubt if this field of interest could have held him long. Children fascinated him. How well he understood them we can see from his delightful earnest or parent for a day. But Bourne's heart was too insistently involved in the situation of his own contemporaries, in the stress of their immediate problems, to allow him to linger in these long hopes. This young intelligentsia, in whose ultimate unity he had had such faith, did he not see it, moreover, as the war advanced, lapsing, falling apart again, reverting into the ancestral attitudes of the tribe? Granted the war, it was the business of these liberals to see that it was played, as he said, quote, with insistent care for democratic values at home and unequivocal alliance with democratic elements abroad for a peace that should promise more than a mere union of benevolent imperialisms, end quote. Instead, the allure of the martial passed only to be succeeded by the allure of the technical, and the prudent, enlightened college man, cut in the familiar pattern, took the place of the value creator, the pathfinder, the seeker of new horizons. Plainly, the younger generation had not begun to find its own soul, had hardly so much as registered its will for a new orientation of the American spirit. Had it not occurred before, this general reversion to type, the whole first phase of the social movement had spent itself in a sort of ineffectual beating of the air, and Bourne saw that only through a far more heroic effort of criticism than had yet been attempted could the young intelligentsia disentangle itself, prevail against the mass fatalism of the middle class, and rouse the workers out of their blindness and apathy. 
Fifteen years ago, a new breath had blown over the American scene. People felt that the era of big business had reached its climacteric, that a new nation was about to be born out of the social settlements, out of the soil that had been harrowed and swept by the muckrakers, out of the spirit of service that animated a whole new race of novelists and a vast army of young men and young women who felt fluttering in their souls the call to some great impersonal adventure, went forth to the slums and the factories and the universities with a powerful but very vague desire to realize themselves and to do something for the world. But one would have said that movement had been born middle-aged, so earnest, so anxious, so conscientious, so troubled, so maternal and paternal were the faces of these young men and women who marched forth with so puzzled an intrepidity. There was none of the tang and fire of youth in it, none of the fierce glitter of the intellect. There was no joyous burning of boats. There were no transfigurations, no ecstasies. There was only a warm simmer of eager evangelical sentiment that somehow never reached the boiling point and cooled rapidly off again, and that host of tentative and wistful seekers found themselves as cruelly astray as the little visionaries of the children's crusade. Was not the failure of that movement due almost wholly to its lack of critical equipment? In the first place, it was too naive and too provincial. It was outside the mainstream of modern activity and desire. It had none of the reserves of power that result from being in touch with contemporary developments in other countries. In the second place, it had no realistic sense of American life. It ignored the facts of the class struggle. It accepted enthusiastically illusions like that of the melting pot. It wasted its energy in attacking bad business without realizing that the spirit of business enterprise is itself the great enemy. It failed to see the need of a consciously organized intellectual class or to appreciate the necessary conjunction in our day of the intellectuals and the proletariat. Worst of all, it had no personal psychology. Those crusaders of the social consciousness were far from being conscious of themselves. They had never broken the umbilical cord of their hereditary class. They had not discovered their own individual lines of growth. They had no knowledge of their own powers, no technique for using them effectively. Embarked in activities that instantly revealed themselves as futile and fallacious, they also found their loyalties in perpetual conflict with one another. Inevitably their zeal waned and their energy ebbed away, and the tides of uniformity and commercialism swept the American scene once more. No one had grasped all these elements of the social situation so firmly as Bourne. He saw that we needed, first, a psychological interpretation of these younger malcontents, secondly, a realistic study of our institutional life, and finally, a general opening of the American mind to the currents of contemporary desire and effort and experiment abroad. And along each of these lines, he did the work of a pioneer. Who, for example, had ever thought of exploring the soul of the younger generation as Bourne explored it. He had planned a long series of literary portraits of its types and personalities. Half a dozen of them exist, along with several of quite different character, the keenest satires we have. 
enough to show us how sensitively he responded to those detached, groping, wistful, yet resolutely independent spirits whom he saw weaving the iridescent fabric of the future. He who had so early divined the truth of Maurice Barre's saying that we never conquer the intellectual suffrages of those who precede us in life, addressed himself exclusively to these young spirits. He went out to meet them. He probed their obscurities. One would have said that he was a sort of impresario gathering the personnel of some immense orchestra, seeking in each the principle of his own growth. He had studied his chosen minority with such instinctive care that everything he wrote came as a personal message to those, and those alone, who were capable of assimilating it. And that is why, as we look over his writings today, we find them a sort of corpus, a text full of secret ciphers and packed with meaning between the lines of all the most intimate questions and difficulties and turns of thought and feeling that make up the soul of young America. He revealed us to ourselves. He intensified and at the same time corroborated our desires. Above all, he showed us what we had in common and what new increments of life might arise out of the friction of our differences. In these portraits he was already doing the work of the novelist he might well have become. He left two or three chapters of a novel he had begun to write, in which Karen and Sfranisba and the professor would probably have appeared along with a whole battle array of the older and younger generations. He was sketching out the role some novelist might play in the parturition of the new America. Everything for analysis, for self-discovery, for articulation, everything to put the younger generation in possession of itself, everything to weave the tissue of a common understanding to help the growth and freedom of the spirit. There was something prophetic in Bourne's personality. In his presence one felt, in his writings, one realizes that the army of youth is already assembling for the effort of reason and the adventure of beauty. I shall say little of his work as a critic of institutions. It is enough to point out that if such realistic studies as his Transnational America and his Mirror of the Middle West, a perfect example, by the way, of his theory of the book review as an independent enquiry with a central idea of its own. His papers on the settlements and on sociological fiction had appeared 15 years ago. A vastly greater amount of effective energy might have survived the breakup of the first phase of the social movement. When he showed what mare's nests the settlements and the melting pot theory and the spirit of service are, and what snares for democracy lie in Meredith Nicholson's folksiness. He closed the gate on half the blind alleys in which youth had gone astray. And he who had so delighted in Veblen's ruthless condensation of the mystical gases of American business implied in every line he wrote that there is a gulf fixed between the young intellectual and the unreformable system. The young intellectual henceforth was an unclassed outsider, with a scent all the more keenly sharpened for new trails, because the old trails were denied him, and for Bourne those new trails led straight and by the shortest possible route to a society the very reverse of ours, a society such as A.E. has described in the phrase, democratic in economics, aristocratic in thought to be attained through a coalition of the thinkers and the workers. 
The task of the thinkers of the intelligentsia, insofar as they concern themselves directly with economic problems, was, in Born's eyes, chiefly to think. It was a new doctrine for American radicals. It precisely denoted their advance over the evangelicism of 15 years ago. The young radical today he wrote in one of his reviews, is not asked to be a martyr, but he is asked to be a thinker, an intellectual leader. The labor movement in this country needs a philosophy, a literature, a constructive socialist analysis and criticism of industrial relations. Labor will scarcely do this thinking for itself. Unless middle-class radicalism threshes out its categories and interpretations and undertakes this constructive thought, it will not be done. The only way by which middle-class radicalism can serve is by being fiercely and concentratedly intellectual. Finally, through Born more than through any other of our younger writers, one gained a sense of the stir of the great world, of the currents and cross-currents of the contemporary European spirit, behind and beneath the war, of the tendencies and experiences and common aims and bonds of the younger generation everywhere. He was an exception to what seems to be the general rule that Americans who are able to pass outside their own national spirit at all are apt to fall headlong into the national spirit of some one other country. They become vehement partisans of Latin Europe or of England or of Germany and Scandinavia or, more recently, of Russia. Born with that singular union of detachment and affectionate penetration which he brought also to his personal relationships, had entered them all with an equal curiosity, an impartial delight. If he had absorbed the fine idealism of the English liberals, he understood also the more elemental, the more emotional, the more positive urge of revolutionary Russia. He was full of practical suggestions from the vast social and economic laboratory of modern Germany. He had caught something also from the intellectual excitement of young Italy. Most of all, his imagination had been captivated, as we can see from such essays as Mon Ami, by the candor and the self-consciousness and the genius for social introspection of radical France. And all these influences were perpetually at play in his mind and in his writings. He was the conductor of innumerable diverse inspirations, a sort of clearinghouse of the best living ideas of the time. Through him, the young writer and the young thinker came into instant contact with whatever in the modern world he most needed. And here again, Bourne revealed his central aim. He reviewed by choice and with a special passion what he called the epics of youthful talent that grows great with quest and desire. It is easy to see in his articles on such book as Pella the Conqueror and Gorky's Autobiography and the Ragged Trousered Philanthropists that what lured him was the common struggle and aspiration of youth and poverty and the creative spirit everywhere, the sense of a new socialized world groping its way upward. It was this rich ground note in all his work that made him not the critic merely, but the leader. It is impossible to say, of course, what he would have become if his life had been spared. The war had immensely stimulated his political mindedness. He was obsessed during the last two years of his life with a sense of the precariousness of free thought and free speech in this country. 
If they were cut off, he foresaw, the whole enterprise, both of the social revolution and of the new American culture, would perish of inanition. He felt himself at bay. Would he, with all the additional provocation of a hopelessly bungled peace settlement, have continued in the political field, as his unfinished study on the state might suggest? Or would that activity, while remaining vivid and consistent, have subsided into a second place behind his more purely cultural interests? Personally, I like to think that he would have followed this second course. He speaks in the History of a Literary Radical of, quote, living down the new orthodoxies of propaganda, as he and his friends had lived down the old orthodoxies of the classics, and I believe that, freed from the obsessions of the war, his criticism would have concentrated more and more on the problem of evoking and shaping an American literature as the nucleus of that rich, vital, and independent national life he had been seeking in so many ways to promote. Who that knew his talents could have wished it otherwise? Already, except for the poets, the intellectual energy of the younger generation has been drawn almost exclusively into political interests, and the new era, which has begun to draw so sharply the battle line between radicals and reactionaries, is certain only to increase this tendency. If our literary criticism is always impelled sooner or later to become social criticism, it is certainly because the future of our literature and art depends upon the wholesale reconstruction of a social life, all the elements of which are as if united in a sort of conspiracy against the growth and freedom of the spirit. We are in the position described by Ibsen in one of his letters. Quote, I do not think it is of much use to plead the cause of art with arguments derived from its own nature, which with us is still so little understood, or rather so thoroughly misunderstood. My opinion is that at the present time it is of no use to wield one's weapons for art. One must simply turn them against what is hostile to art. End quote. That is why Bourne, whose ultimate interest was always artistic, found himself a guerrilla fighter along the whole battlefront of the social revolution. He was drawn into the political arena as a skillful specialist, called into war service, is drawn into the practice of a general surgery in which he may indeed accomplish much, but at the price of the suspension of his own uniqueness. Others, at the expiration of what was for him a critical moment, the moment when all freedom seemed to be at stake, might have been trusted to do his political work for him. The whole radical tide was flowing behind him. His unique function, meanwhile, was not political but spiritual. It was the creation, the communication of what he called, quote, the allure of fresh and true ideas, of free speculation, of artistic vigor, of cultural styles, of intelligence suffused by feeling, and feeling given fiber and outline by intelligence. End quote. Was it not to have been hoped, therefore, that he would have revived, exemplified among these new revolutionary conditions, and on behalf of them, the lapsed role of the man of letters? For if he held a hammer in one hand, he held in the other a divining rod. He, if anyone, in the days to come, would have conjured out of our dry soil the green shoots of a beautiful and a characteristic literature. 
he knew that soil so well, and why it was dry, and how it ought to be irrigated. We have had no chart of our cultural situation to compare with his history of a literary radical, and certainly no one has combined with an analytical gift like his and an adoration for the instinct of workmanship so burning an eye for every stir of life and color on the drab American landscape. I think of a sentence in one of his reviews, the appearance of dramatic imagination in any form in this country is something to make us all drop our work and run to see. That was the spirit which animated all his criticism. Is it not the spirit that creates out of the void the thing it contemplates? To have known Randolph Bourne is indeed to have surprised some of the finest secrets of the American future. But those who lived with him in friendship will remember him for reasons that are far more personal and at the same time far more universal than that. They will remember him as the wondrous companion, the lyrical intellect, the transparent idealist, most of all perhaps as the ingenuous and lonely child. It is said that every writer possesses in his vocabulary one talismanic word which he repeats again and again, half unconsciously, like a sort of signature, and which reveals the essential secret of his personality. In Bourne's case, the word is wistful. And those who accused him of malice and bitterness, not realizing how instinctively we impute these qualities to the physically deformed who are so dauntless in spirit that they repel our pity, would do well to consider that secret signature, sown like some beautiful wild flower over the meadow of his writings, which no man can counterfeit, which is indeed the token of their inviolable sincerity. He was a wanderer, the child of some nation yet unborn, smitten with an inappeasable nostalgia for the beloved community on the far side of socialism. He carried with him the intoxicating air of that community, the mysterious aroma of all its works and ways. High philosophic thought infused with sensuous love, he wrote once, is not this the one incorrigible dream that clutches us? It was the dream he had brought back from the bright future in which he lived, the dream he summoned us to realize. And it issues now like a gallant command out of the space left vacant by his passing. Van Wick Brooks End of Introduction <laughs>